Welcome back to Brainwaves Audio, continuing medical audiocation for the neurologist. Today I've got Dr. Clyde Markowitz, who's a professor at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and director of the MS Center here, and we'll be talking about radiologically isolated syndrome. Welcome, Dr. Markowitz. Thank you. All right, so first things first, radiologically isolated syndrome is a new or at least relatively new diagnosis that we've been making in the last maybe decade or so. How do you think that that's impacted... According to the original description by Okuda and colleagues, imaging features consistent with RIS include ovoid, well-circumscribed, and homogeneous foci without colossal involvement, white matter injury pattern that is incongruous with the vascular etiology, and finally, T2 lesions greater than 3 millimeters and fulfilling three of the four Barkoff criteria for spatial dissemination, meaning juxtacortical, periventricular, or infratentorial locations, and gadolinium enhancement. Before I forget, I wanted to talk about the differential diagnosis you have for radiologically isolated syndrome. So what kind of things do you consider in your patients who come in with scattered periventricular or T2 hyperintense lesions, and how do you test them for these things? So it depends on the demographic. So if you're looking at people who are in the young 20s, 30s age range, um, may have a different set of concerns than somebody who's presenting into their 40s and 50s. So the biggest things you, you consider are, you know, do they have history of migraine, headaches, hypertension, diabetes, you know, those are things. But if you look at the actual lesions themselves, there's very little that actually follows the exact pattern of what typical MS lesions look like. You know, Dawson's finger type of distribution with, you know, um, small little venules that are coming directly out of the um, periventricular white matter there. But in that arena, you look at other autoimmune conditions, you know, so you look at things like lupus, Sjogren's, sarcoid, NMO. You have to be somewhat concerned in the population of younger people, you know, HIV and syphilis and some of the other infectious etiologies. But there's almost nothing that really, if you have a good bona fide scan, there's almost nothing that actually looks like that except MS. Among the patients who have RIS, and you continue to follow them over time, like this is still a relatively new diagnosis and only been really popularized in the literature since 2009. These patients are more likely to accrue new lesions. Two-thirds of patients within five years will have new lesions. Do you think that we're just not watching them long enough? Or that if we continue to follow them, like we do with outpatient telemetry monitoring for atrial fibrillation, the longer we monitor, the more likely we're going to capture a clinical event or... Do you think that Absolutely. since these people have characteristic MS-like lesions that they're just going to have MS in 10 years' time or 20 years' time? Yes. And if you look at the CIS population, this is clear. If you follow these people who presented with their first clinical event and then ask the question, at least historically in the past, if you ask the question, when did they develop their next clinical event that defined them as MS? The longer you waited and followed these people, the more people evolved into that diagnosis. Well, I mean, most of us see patients who come into the office with a variety of complaints. Let's say it's a migraine headache and somebody got an MRI scan or you ordered an MRI scan and you see these white matter lesions and they look classic for multiple sclerosis in the distribution of... The most common reason for acquisition of MRI in patients with RIS is headache, accounting for about 50% of all indications, according to one systematic review. Because subcortical areas of T2 prolongation are commonly observed in migraineurs, 
It is important to apply criteria such as those derived by Barkov and colleagues in order to determine the likelihood of such lesions indicating demyelination. And you ask the question, does this patient have MS? And you go through the history with the patient, they have absolutely not a single complaint. The evolution over the last decade has been, let's study these patients, let's see what's happened. Right? So you go ahead and you enroll them in a study and you say, let's follow them with scans every six months to a year. You evaluate them clinically in those time points and you look to see, do people end up having new complaints? Do they have any neurologic symptoms suggestive of MS and do they have new lesions on their scans? And there's been a fairly large effort across the planet to look at this. When you're talking about the types of lesions, you know, you mentioned periventricular, that they're ovoid, um, certainly lesions that are greater than three millimeters in size, but of all the characteristics of the lesions, gadolinium enhancement is a major risk factor for progression to at least a clinically isolated syndrome. Do you also consider like the number of lesions and why don't we consider MRIs of the neuroaxis at this point? Sometimes we just go with the MRI of the brain and say it's radiologically isolated syndrome of the brain when we could in fact go to the rest of the neuroaxis with a follow-up MRI. First of all, people get scans for other reasons and typically they're getting it of the brain. But we have seen people show up getting a spine MRI because they were having neck pain, or maybe they had a fall, and now they had some numbness, or they attributed this to some sort of a compression neuropathy or something they wanted to look, and they see these scans with lesions in the cord as well. So what's interesting is that if you looked at the patients who got followed in that five-year time frame, about a third of those patients go on to develop their first clinical event, which we call CIS. But a larger majority of those patients actually had more new lesions that showed up. So you may have a new GAD-enhancing lesion or you may have a new T2 lesion. And the greatest predictor of whether somebody was going to go on to develop MS or clinically isolated syndrome was cord lesions. Other important predictors of progression to MS in patients with RIS include, perhaps most importantly, cervical spine and other infratentorial lesions, cortical lesions, the presence of more than nine T2 lesions, younger age, oligoclonal bands in the CSF, and abnormal evoked potentials. Lower cortical volume has also been previously correlated with poor cognitive performance in patients with RIS and is also likely to be predictive of future conversion to MS. Interestingly, there has been no statistically significant correlation between family history of MS or autoimmune disease and RIS progression to MS, although 10% of RIS patients have an immediate family member with MS. You know, I think our management right now is purely on the basis of telling patients risk but we don't treat these people because they don't have any clinical symptomatology. Now, there are some trials right now looking at whether or not treating these people would actually reduce the likelihood of developing their first clinical event and maybe suppressing new lesions on MRI. Regarding the additional or adjunctive therapies that aren't technically part of the McDonald criteria or the revised McDonald criteria for MS, in univariate analyses in some papers, there doesn't seem to be a, a very strong correlation between oligoclonal bands alone and predicting MS. It's 
only illegal clonal bands in the setting of these possible radiologically isolated syndrome lesions that we see that. And so when you combine the several modalities, do we actually see that these patients develop CIS? When you see someone with RIS, do you traditionally go forward with these other testing, visually evoked potentials and, and CSF analysis? It all depends. So if I'm seeing somebody who had absolutely no complaints and had a incidental finding on an MRI scan for, let's say, headaches, and I look at that scan and it is classic for MS, maybe there's a family history of autoimmunity in the family. Maybe there's even some uh, sibling that has MS. I have a pretty frank discussion with them about what I think is going on here. What I can't tell them is what their risk looks like in the next 10 years with that piece of data alone. I need some additional data points. I need follow-up MRI scans. Now, if I go and I have the conversation, quite frankly, I say, I'm worried that this could be MS. We can get some additional data, which will help give us some additional risk uh, profiling that I could say, your risk is higher or maybe not. Um, so I'll give them a choice because doing a spinal tap is not exactly a benign procedure. I mean, most people tolerate it just fine, but you know, they may have a concern about it. So I will offer that to them, and I do. And a lot of patients will say, you know what, let's just follow it on MRI scan. I don't need the spinal tap. And some will say, hey, if I could potentially have MS, let's get all the data, and if you tell me I'm at high risk, I'm going to take some therapy. And I have actually treated some patients at this point because I believe strongly enough that this, in fact, is MS. And I usually will not treat them only on one scan, but if I see an evolution of the scan showing new lesions or gamma-enhancing lesions, absolutely. The ARISE trial is a prospective randomized controlled clinical trial comparing dimethyl fumarate to placebo for the treatment of radiologically isolated syndrome in 210 planned patients. Enrollment began in November 2014 and will take place at several centers in the United States. The primary outcome of interest is time to acute or progressive neurologic event that results in CNS demyelination. So when would you repeat the MRI in these patients? Three months. Three months? Okay. And say the MRI is unchanged or at least there are no new lesions or no new gadolinium-enhancing lesions. How often I would you I scan them every three months, at least in the first year. And if there's nothing going on, and I was really you know, pretty convinced that this is an MS-looking scan, um, I will probably go to six months. And in some cases, I go to one year. It remains highly controversial as to whether there is clinical equipoise to treat RIS patients with immunomodulating therapy. Some would recommend a wait-and-follow approach, unless the provider is enrolling the patient in a clinical trial. Regardless of treatment with DMT, patients with RIS often have other complaints similar to those of patients with MS, headaches, fatigue, cognitive impairment. You should be encouraged to address and treat these issues as you would for patients with demyelinating disease in order to improve your patient's quality of life. So what is your threshold if you repeat the scan in three months or six months or a year and you see some degree of change? What is that degree of change that really pushes you to the limit of having to test them uh, with a trial of some kind of a drug, be it an interferon or other therapy? That's a, a dicier place because if I see another bona fide looking lesion, all right, and not one that was so tiny that could have been missed on the previous scan, but let's just say for an instance that you know, I looked at each scan and I say, this is a real bona fide lesion. I have a frank conversation about treating them at this point. And I would probably steer them to an injectable therapy because they're safe and don't really have as much of the safety concerns. 
So I don't know what the tempo of this is going to look like. You know, they may be quiet for the next year or two. I don't know that. So you would treat the radiologically isolated syndrome if there is evidence of progression to a certain degree. But I have to be pretty convinced that I'm not missing some other condition. Of the types of treatments you could consider if you were to enroll a patient in a clinical trial, what other kinds of trials are ongoing or do you expect to see in the future? Well, I think that if you look at the MS field, it's evolving. Right? So you have more and more of these compounds coming out, and the older compounds are the safest. Right? We've been using them for 20-plus years, and there's no major safety concerns. Now, if you go down the pathway of looking at some of the oral drugs or some of the newer drugs that are actually coming out, even drugs like natalizumab or maybe ocrelizumab in the future, those strategies may be the perfect strategy for this population because if you could stop this disease activity early on before it starts to really pick up any pace, you might be able to change the course of things. There is good evidence supporting the earlier initiation of DMT in patients with clinically isolated syndrome as a means to delay conversion to definite MS, and this is reviewed by Gooden and colleagues. However, there are currently no randomized controlled clinical trials comparing early intervention with alternative approaches in patients with RIS. Talk about pediatric RIS. Some interesting data that I presented at the EAN. So, you know, when you look at the MS field, we've focused primarily on adults because that's where most of the patients present. But... There are plenty of MS programs around the country that are taking care of children with MS, being diagnosed as early as, you know, uh, five, six years of age, but more commonly in the teenage years, maybe 10, 11, 12, etc. And they've been looking at now the RIS population in the pediatric world. And they, too, have been following these patients to see what percentage of these patients go on to develop their CIS or their first event and Is there any signature to this that would predict somebody's likelihood? And they, too, have been doing the same kind of analysis, looking at spinal fluid and predicting um, people going on to develop CIS. And what they are finding is pretty similar to what we're finding, which is that two-thirds of the patients will go on to develop new lesions on their scans. Now, they have not even entered into the arena of therapeutics at this point, but What's interesting is that in the adult world, it looks like about a third of the patients will go on to develop a clinical event. In the pediatric world, it may be as high as 50% of the patients go on to develop a clinical event. So that may be even a better population to study the notion of an aggressive therapeutic intervention in pediatrics. Because if this is the first potential place that you could intervene and they could alter the course and maybe, you know, 5, 10, 20, 25 years down the line, you're going to have an entirely different course because you intervened at the earliest possible site. So I think that's a pretty interesting piece, and we'll have to really start exploring that. So you're saying that there's more clinical equipoise to earlier treatment in younger patients because they may have more to benefit or more to gain from such kind of earlier intervention. That's my gut feeling about it. Are there any differences in the clinical presentations you see with children versus adults, like more optic neuritis, you know, more brainstem or spinal cord lesions? Yeah, typically you might see a little bit higher rate of optic neuritis. You know, as you look at the spectrum of age, 
you see that um, sensory and optic neuritis kind of things are much more common in the younger age population. But if you look at the um, you know, patients who present in their 40s and 50s, you're seeing more of the motor and cerebellar type of presentations at that point. So, I th- And here's another piece that's particularly interesting is that as you go back, there's a difference between boys and girls. When you really look at the earliest phases of MS presentation in pediatrics, it's more commonly in girls, less so in boys. And then as the age increases, you start to see more and more boys get involved. And by the time you're getting into your 40s and 50s, it's almost a one-to-one ratio. Right. Well, that was Dr. Markowitz talking about radiologically isolated syndrome, the predictive factors that are associated with clinically isolated events down the line, and especially the importance of knowing that one-third of these patients will have a clinical event within five years' time, and two-thirds of patients will actually continue to develop new radiographic lesions. Some takeaway points are that the radiologically isolated syndrome and the predictors of future clinical events are going to be new gadolinium-enhancing lesions and new accrual of multiple T2 lesions. Adjunctive testing like visually evoked potentials, lumbar puncture for oligoclonal bands, and CSF protein profiling can certainly give you some more insight into the likelihood of progression for these patients, so these should be pursued in select cases. You should maintain clinical equipoise with early and aggressive therapy with patients who may have early and aggressive lesions. There are ongoing trials, especially with dimethyl fumarate, currently with the ARISE trial, uh, in order to determine whether there is any benefit to earlier treatment in radiologically isolated syndrome. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio or contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Salmo. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves. You're going to edit out those little cricket sounds you're making. Right? Yeah. You don't like the you don't like the crickets. It's okay. I like. Yeah, you know, it's when it's quiet. You yeah. have a little cricket sound. But this is the year of the cicada. Oh no, they're coming this, back this year. Oh man. So get ready, man. Seventeen years. We're back. <laughs>